Three years since Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi declared that the gruelling, bloody battle against the most feared terror group in history was over. ISIS had been defeated in Iraq. The battle itself took three long years, but the legacy left behind amidst the rubble of Mosul, the mass graves across Sinjar and the divided parliament in Baghdad will last a generation. This is Beyond the Headlines, I'm your host James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking back at the days when the black flag of ISIS hung like a pall over Iraq, and how their bloody rule has left an everlasting mark on the country. Today we'll hear from those in the northern city of Mosul, who were there in the days in 2014 when the Iraqi army collapsed and fled in the face of an ISIS blitzkrieg. We'll hear from one of the Nationals reporters who covered the battle to liberate the city two years later and joined the famed elite Golden Division as they fought street to street in the rubble-strewn alleys of Old Mosul. And we'll hear from those in the city today trying to rebuild their lives and look at what's next for Iraq. But first, let's look at ISIS. Where did the group come from and how did it rise to control huge territories across Iraq and Syria? Many of us will have first started hearing about ISIS in around mid-2013, when the group really started to gain ground in the bogged-down Syrian civil war, where it began hoovering up smaller, hardline factions, seizing territory and establishing its rule. But at this point, the group was already nearly 15 years old. Its history is steeped in the bloody sectarian fighting after the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And while it was once an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden's terror group cut ties with the early ISIS for being simply too brutal and unwilling to compromise. But in the crucible of the Syrian war, ISIS emerged as one of the most cunning, competent and brutal factions, allowing them to infiltrate, gain ground and local support for establishing order in the chaos and then slowly enacting their uncompromising rule. It controlled major cities from Aleppo to Raqqa, when, in 2014, it crossed into Iraq. Despite trillions of dollars of US funding and equipment to build and train the Iraqi army, the soldiers turned and fled in the face of the onslaught. In a matter of days, ISIS had taken Mosul, a major city of over one and a half million people, and it looked like it could fall on Baghdad and take the capital or even push into the relative safe haven of the semi-autonomous Kurdish region of Iraq. In 2014, ISIS's elusive head, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, took to the pulpit of Mosul's famous al-Nuri mosque. He declared the establishment of a religious caliphate that spanned across Syria from the Levant to the deserts of the border regions to the fertile lands of old Mesopotamia. In almost real time, the world watched as the border that had stood for a hundred years was erased. But also in real time, the world watched a brutal genocide enacted against Iraq's minorities. In August 2014, ISIS killed around 5,000 Iraqi Yazidis in Sinjar and sold thousands of women and children into slavery across their territory. Iraqi Shiite soldiers at a military camp overrun by the group were lined up and murdered. Christians too were forced to pay religious taxes or faced murder, often by crucifixion, being thrown from rooftops or beheading. 
The same was meted out against many of ISIS's critics, local leaders, and anyone deemed as a deviant by the group, or anyone who simply crossed them. Baghdad was in chaos. Meanwhile, over in Mosul, ISIS enacted their strict rule and set about governing their new lands. Well, it, it was terrifying, like seeing all the, the police cars in the streets and their guns and the dead body bodies in the in the streets. And it was it was terrifying for me. It was my first time like to see dead people, you know, I, I just can't imagine it. Um, and when I stayed for one month in Mosul, like uh, I had some problems with uh, ISIS, uh, you know, that's Muamwa, a 21-year-old music producer, rapper and trainee dentist from Mosul. He was just 15 when ISIS came to power. When they see you walking in the street, like they ask you, why are you wearing this? Or why are you doing this? It's haram. You can't do this. If you do it, we're going to like... Uh, torture you, no? And <clears throat> it was hard for me to, to live with this. It was a very bad experience. After a month, he was able to flee and ended up in Spain to finish his studies and wait for the end of ISIS in Iraq. We were struggling to, to, to live in, in the beginning, but uh, and also when they, they freed Mosul, it was terrifying, but uh, I wasn't there. In this time, I, I, I was I was living in Madrid, but my my you know my relatives and my neighbors stayed in Mosul, so I hear all the the news coming going on, and it was a hard time to communicate with the people inside Mosul because, you know, if ISIS figured out that they will they would kill them. It was so hard. We don't know anything about them. We don't know anything about the my my cousins, anything about my neighbors, and also my brother stayed in Mosul because if. If my brother would move out, if all our family would move move out of Mosul, they will take our house, our cars, our things. So, you know, we, j- we just can't leave it like. So my brother stayed. Ali al-Baroudi is a professor at Mosul University. The faculty buildings were held by ISIS, who destroyed upwards of 100,000 manuscripts from the library, cleared the buildings and turned it into a base of operations. Ali stayed in Mosul throughout ISIS's three-year rule of the city. Today, as well as teaching, he uses his camera to document his city, the destruction, the reconstruction, and the people trying to bring hope back to Mosul. For him, it wasn't just the death and destruction caused by the group, it was what ISIS did to the very fabric of Iraqi society. ISIS did a lot. A lot of things, a lot of crimes, a lot of enslavement, a lot of murdering from different areas in Iraq and Nineveh in particular where I live. But the most heinous, dangerous thing that ISIS did was messing with the texture of the Iraqi society. Mosul is known as a melting pot in which people from different ethnic and religious backgrounds live. And all of a sudden, they are all gone. Their properties confiscated. And the fabric was messed with. 
after ISIS took control of Mosul in 2014, the world jumped into action, forming a coalition of dozens of nations to protect Baghdad, push ISIS back, and ultimately to destroy the group. The job would take three years in Iraq and even longer in Syria. But in 2016, the Iraqi government was ready to announce the start of the battle to liberate Mosul. For months, they had been securing areas around the city, building up their lines and preparing. The Iraqi army had been hastily put back together, and it was bolstered by the competent Kurdish Peshmerga forces from the east and thousands of militiamen assembled into what were called popular mobilisation forces. These mostly Shiite brigades were part of a fighting force for Iraq, but they also received backing from neighbouring Iran. Today, Gareth Brown is a reporter in the National's Beirut Bureau, but four years ago he was arriving in Erbil, inside the Kurdish region about 80 kilometres east of Mosul, for his first major foreign assignment. He describes arriving in the city that acted as something of a civilian staging post for the offensive. I think I think getting off the plane in Erbil, you there's this almost paralyzing anxiety because of what you hear about Iraq in the news and in, in films and in books that the moment you step out of the airport you're going to get shot or you're going to be kidnapped and then um, it quickly becomes apparent that you know 99% of life is very very normal um, you know there was a big community of journalists and aid workers expats diplomats all all working out of their bill um, most of them working on um, the preparations for the battle, the humanitarian preparations. Um, so there was, there, was, there was a very interesting community. I mean, places like this attract the weird and the wonderful. Um, and obviously there were lots of very good journalists there. Um, there were lots of very, very committed aid workers and lots of very intelligent diplomats. But, uh, you know, you, you definitely bump into people who were kind of war tourists. And you might meet them in a bar or at a party and think, you know, what are you doing here? Sort of, you know, you're trying to kind of work out everyone's motivations for being there. And um, I still work out, trying to work out some people's motivations to this day. I think, um, I think that was what was quite interesting about Erbil. All these people, um, you know, were there for, for, for essentially the same reasons, but very different motivations. Something that stood out almost immediately, Gareth says, is that while from overseas, the story of ISIS in Iraq was about geopolitics, terrorism and conflict, for Iraqis, it was about people. The looming offensive was on everyone's minds and everybody was impacted. You know, Iraq is, is including the Kurdish areas, is what, 20-odd million people, but ISIS was, was such a big kind of trauma for that country that really, regardless of where you were, it was it was pretty difficult to meet someone who hadn't been personally affected by ISIS. So either they'd been forced to flee their home, or maybe they'd lost a brother or a mother or a cousin. Um, so it wasn't this kind of big ge geopolitical story that many people see it uh, as. For, for, I would say for the overwhelming proportion of Iraqis and Kurds, it was a personal story. And so obviously that, that meant it kind of dominated um, their lives to a far, far greater extent. And while the offensive was seen as the real beginning of the end of ISIS, for many, there was a fear about what the battle would also bring. 
people were looking forward to getting rid of this this threat, this enemy. They were looking forward to having it dealt with. Um, and I think from I think there was an increasing faith in the armed forces that they were going to, you know, this was going to be their heroic time, um, and they were going to kind of save the country, salvage the country. Um, as I said, that the, the the fear had gone, but but you know, people people were still caught in awful situations, and knowing that this huge battle is going to take place in most 1.5 million people living there, this you know, urban centre, and everyone knew it was going to be very, very, very bloody and very messy. And if you've got cousins or, or, or relatives still living in Mosul, then, you know, that's a fear. And, and you, you know, you did hear that time and time again, people saying, look, I'm really happy, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to see this group gone, done, finished with. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned because my, my family are going to be caught up in this battle. And, you know, as battle did go on we saw there was a lot of civilian casualties we saw you know infrastructure in the city being being destroyed and the airstrikes were, were devastating not just for ISIS but for civilians at times as well so those those fears were founded uh, I guess but what was it like in the Mosul liberation when the fighting started well Gareth says there was a lot of waiting so there's a lot of waiting around and doing nothing followed by very short, very intensive periods of, of drama. So that was definitely true from my experience. And there's a lot of the banal, you know, a lot of the time the soldiers are just killing, killing time more than anything. Um, you know, they're sharing stories, old battle stories. They're speaking to their girlfriends and wives on WhatsApp. They're showing each other videos, which are going round of, um, you know, ISIS's atrocities or, or things that have happened on the battlefield. Most of most of kind of that that fighting you see from a distance, uh, you more you, you hear it more than you see it. Um, so of course you see the jets flying in, you see the the bombs being dropped, you see the the mortar rounds going off. Um, I think I remember the, the you know the first day we kind of entered the city limits, which was a huge kind of milestone. Because a lot of the first few weeks they were fighting in villages to the east and to the south of Mosul, and then when they kind of broke through the district barrier and we're in Mosul, the city proper. So that, that first day when we kind of entered Mosul, the city proper, was with a division of the Iraqi army. And the first thing we saw was, you know, in this quiet outer street of the city were two um, dead ISIS fighters. And um, I remember going back a few weeks later and their bodies were still there. You know, they hadn't been cleaned up buried or anything and i guess it begs the question you know who takes responsibility for that sort of thing who, who clears those things up but yeah i mean a lot of the fighting you, you see from a distance obviously there's there's really serious safety precautions but then every so often usually unplanned you are right in the thick of it um i recall a day in uh in the city's west you know with a i was with the erd which was an, a ministry of interior unit the emergency response division um, being on a rooftop and these soldiers were kind of showing me their kind of field of view from the rooftop and you know before I knew it these rounds started pinging in and I, I remember you know basically lying on the floor hiding behind this wall and then the rounds were hitting the wall behind me and I was getting kind of covered in in the plasterboard as it chipped off um, you know and each round that came in is getting closer and closer um, 
but those moments are you know they're they're obviously dramatic and perhaps they make for a good story but they're a real minority the battle for mosul lasted from october 2016 to july 2017. the army the militias and the peshmerga fought to clear the streets of isis fighters booby traps and ieds the threat of car bombs of sneak attacks and of ambushes was ever present. Artillery and airstrikes rained down on the city, but it wasn't just ISIS still there, there were also thousands of civilians held as human shields. Something that struck Gareth is seeing the people who managed to escape the caliphate reach the liberated front lines and cast off the tyrannical rule of ISIS. You know, there was quite a few occasions where I was there where people were coming out of ISIS-held territory for the first time in, in several years. So those are probably some of the most vivid memories I have of, of my time there, you know. Um, I remember being um, uh, at a village called Hassan Sham, which is about halfway between Erbil and Mosul. And it's where some of the main camps had been set up for those fleeing ISIS in, in Mosul. And, um, you know, I was there and this, these busloads of people you know, who had, who had just come out of ISIS territory, you know, they arrived and all these women got off and they were literally taking off their niqabs and throwing them on the floor. And then, uh, you know, one, one of the men that had come out with them tried to set fire to the niqabs. And I just remember this big pile of black niqabs, you know, there was hundreds of them just, just sat in the sand. Um, and, you know, the, and, and another one was when, uh, you know, this group of men came out and they hadn't been allowed to shave under ISIS. And um, one of the um, Iraqi soldiers I was with brought out an electric razor and I kind of watched all these men shave off their beard for the first time in, in several years. And I just remember the kind of hairs blowing in the wind on the pavement below them. You know, this is kind of encapsulates, the, encapsulates freedom and, and the sense of relief these, these people had as they were coming out of these areas for the first time. As the fighting drew closer to the old city of Mosul, it became more intense as the streets narrowed. The fighting was dangerous for everyone. Iraq's special operation forces, known as the Golden Division, were the elite of the military, trained alongside the best of US and British military trainers and units, and they were one of the most competent and well-equipped forces that Baghdad had. In Mosul, they were often first through the door. But it came at a price. By some estimates, at least half of the force were killed in the battle. In all of the fighting to liberate Mosul, between nine and 11,000 civilians were also killed. Mosul was left littered with an estimated 8 million tonnes of rubble. The battle was won, but at a terrible price. And ISIS isn't fully defeated. There are still remnants and hardcore loyalists held up in the mountains. Roadside bombs still go off, assassinations still take place, and on December 9th, 2020, an oil well near the Kurdistan border was set ablaze by ISIS. So the battle may have ended, but the war goes on. Mu'an returned to his hometown after the fighting and settled there to be part of the rebuilding efforts. 2016, when I came back to Mosul and I was like shocked because a lot of exploded places, you know, houses, 
public places, it was like terrifying. I didn't recognize it for the first time, you know? Like, it was different, it was so different. But with the time, it, it became normal, you know? And رجعت الحياه People start to work, start to rebuild the city. So now it's, it's good, I think it's good. And it's a good place to, to live. Today, Ali, the teacher at Mosul University, is documenting his city in photographs, trying to tell Mosul's story to the world now that the international camera crews that followed the fighting have left. I am documenting Mosul to try and preserve the memory of the city. I am also acting as an eyewitness to what happened to the war that demolished a lot of Mosul especially in the old town. I am documenting to document everyday life, the resilience of the people of Mosul to revive life after ISIS, to document the lack of services that we have, the poor role played by the the Iraqi government in the city of Mosul after ISIS. Reconstruction efforts are ongoing. The international community has pledged money to help Baghdad. The UAE is funding to rebuild the 4th century Al-Nuri Mosque, that site where Baghdadi declared his caliphate and which his fighters blew up in the final days of the war. But many in the city feel frustrated at the slow progress, at the politicking in Baghdad, and alone as they search for a future. People are not quite satisfied with what's going on in the whole country and in their city in particular. The reconstruction is going so slowly. The the bridges are not fully back. Reconstructing the bridges is taking too much time. Corruption, the uh, government facilities are not operating well. The routine, the bureaucratic complications that we suffer from in our everyday life And then came COVID-19. COVID-19 is not pretty much different from ISIS. It kept us home. Uh, It it exposed the poor role of the Iraqi government. The medical compound is not bad. The health services are so poor here. People resort to the private sector or they go to other cities of Iraq, like Kurdistan region for surgeries, operations, and things that do not exist in the city of Mosul. Uh, People are not quite satisfied at all with the role of the Iraqi government uh, after ISIS. It's so slow, so poor, and it's not trustworthy. Gareth has been back to Mosul several times since the war ended. One of the things he notices is while the fighting is mostly over, the militias are still there. There's a lot of militia presence. And, you know, we talk about militia presence and it's not just them setting up checkpoints, but it's them um, extorting businesses and and getting involved in the running of the city. And that's the sort of thing that is 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 a real concern, because look, ultimately, ISIS was a symptom of of political problems in Iraq. Right. And and if you don't treat the causes, if you just look at the symptom, then the symptoms are going to come back someday. Now, all these issues like corruption and sectarianism, they're kind of embodied by these militias who are now present in, in, in areas that were retaken from ISIS. And, and the risk is 
those causes, that illness still hasn't really been treated. Um, you know, the symptoms definitely gone away for now, um, largely at least. But but I, I think people in, in Mosul, are, you know, w would look at it and say, look, if if these militias are just going to wreak havoc and and and, you know, dispel sectarianism on, on our city again, then, you know, perhaps something like ISIS could 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 happen again, could come back. Ali has one major hope for his city to one day fully be part of his country again and to see life return. But he knows that that will never erase the scars left behind by ISIS. We want Mosul to be connected, to be well connected with the rest of Iraq, to be well connected to the world. We lived in the dark for, for too long. Under Saddam Hussein, it was a complete blackout after 2003, after the invasion. It was terrorism and then came another occupation, ISIS, for three years. We were blacked out as well. We were disconnected from the rest of the country and, and the world as well. It was incriminated to keep in touch with, the, with people from outside the self-proclaimed caliphate. We want Wusel to be well-known, well-documented. Um, we want to restore all the signs of civil life in the city. The music is back, arts are back, the old bazaar is back, and this is a big sign of uh, defeating ISIS and darkness. But is that enough? I don't think so, and that's what many Mosulis share, uh, share with me. Sinan Mahmoud is the Nationals' correspondent in Baghdad. He spends a lot of time looking at the lasting legacy of ISIS, the political crises, the protests against ineffectual, corrupt leadership, and the ongoing security problems. This is how he sees the country today. ISIS is still posing a challenge to the security forces. Its fighters are regrouping in small numbers in rural areas, carrying out hit-and-run attacks. These attacks range from assassinations of civilians and local officials to small bombings of security checkpoints and kidnappings. The victory over ISIS came with a heavy price. Tens of thousands of people had died, more than 3.5 million people displaced, and entire towns and neighborhoods were reduced to rubble. Efforts for reconstructing areas from where ISIS driven out have been hampered due to lack of money, mismanagement, and political infighting. The residents of these areas are still struggling to get back on their feet and are complaining about a lack of work opportunities, a delay in government financial aid, and the shabby public services, mainly electricity and ringing water. Three years after ISIS was finally driven out of Iraq, the country is still reeling. The central government is slowly rebuilding, but the scale is staggering and it will cost billions. Those in Mosul and the other cities, towns and villages once held by ISIS are trying to return to a sense of normalcy, but still others are yet to return home. In late 2020, Iraq ordered the closure of camps for the internally displaced, urging them to finally return home. But many still fear the ongoing insecurity, 
and worry that they will be going back to shattered buildings and no services. The government too is still exhuming mass graves and documenting the atrocities of ISIS. It has begun the process of trying thousands of captured fighters in specialised courts. But the legacy of ISIS will linger on for a battered Iraq. Thanks this week to Moa'an, to Ali Al-Baroudi, to Gareth Brown and to Sinan Mahmoud. This was Beyond the Headlines, I'm James Haynes-Young. If you want to hear all the latest episodes as soon as they air, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you could leave us a review while you're there, it makes a big difference. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. <laughs>